years ago when, when the contractors lived here. They knew what they were doing. We didn't need a CFA as much. We only needed to see a trade truck when there was a house fire, not a bush fire. Only for one guy that was left here, if it wasn't for Gus McKinnon, he just pulled his men together and they did it. He and his crew probably had the greatest impact, more than the CFA, more than, more than anybody else. It was them that, that saved the town. We're surrounded by all of these hectares of publicly managed bush, so these blokes could see what needed to be done and they knew how to do it, but they weren't allowed. And in the end, what happened was exactly how they called it. It just played out exactly how they said it would. And it was only that last independent contractor who actually saved the town because he could move his doses where he wanted. The person everyone is talking about is Gus McKinnon. He's the earth-moving contractor in Can River, and that's where we are this episode. Welcome to Three Towns in the Far East of East Gippsland. I'm Matthew Abud. Last January, the town of Can River and the Can Valley were surrounded by fire and cut off for weeks. But even under this threat, the town and the valley lost very few buildings, a big contrast to many other places. When the people I met talked about how they got through the fire, just about everyone mentioned Gus. Yeah, His depot's mm. just in town. Um, yeah. And this is the uh, Toyota with the fire pump. Yep, I set my own Toyotas up. Um, put two boxes either side, put my own fire pump on, 400 litres of water and, um, yeah. So you're all prepared. You've got, a, yeah, you've got another fire extinguisher there. So, you, yeah, just tow fuel tankers. It's a, I did. Oh, yep, righto. Oh, no, I won't, wor- I won't worry. I'm supposed to go out and meet Ron. He's going out the farm. I'll come home shortly. Yep, yep, I'll be home shortly. Righto. Okay, see ya. It sounds like I should let you go for lunch. Oh, no, I'm not worried about lunch. Yeah, I'm living on painkillers at the moment, so I don't feel like eating. Can River used to be a logging town with several sawmills in operation. The last of them closed around 10 years ago. Now, about 200 people live in the town itself, and under 400 if you include the valley and nearby areas. Most of those I asked say cheap housing is what brings in new residents these days. The whole area is heavily forested. Leading up to last New Year's Eve, the threat was high. Everybody was pretty worried because every time a fire starts now, it burns a bloody town out. But so it didn't come that day. It was fine. But the phone rang about three o'clock next morning, and they said, "Oh, the fire's just out the road here." So I get out of bed. My son's here, so we get out of bed and we go. We went out the Princess Highway, top of Tongyai. It was always already ember attacks at the top of Tongyai, and the fire was just, you know, just spreading out in a circle in the bush. It wasn't going real fierce. It was just getting started. And I come back out here for a drive, and by this time, it had already jumped over the old coast road, and it was burning pretty fierce on the edge of the road, and. Um, and I thought, well, as soon as it gets down over the Blue Nose and gets into that bushland um, just out of Cairn River here where the caravan park is, when it gets into that bush at the caravan park, it's just going to shower Cairn River with embers and um, Cairn River's going to be in trouble. Or, or if the fire gets into the farms, um, 
all the valley's gone because it's just going to go up the valley on the grass and it's just going to fan out from the valley everywhere. So, And I thought to myself that we would be able to get machines through the old coast road and get back onto the farm this side of the coast road and put fire breaks in for the whole town to cut it off so it didn't get into the bush at the camping park. So we had all the gear here and... Um, I suppose the secret to this success to this story was there was uh, we were totally cut off from everyone else. There was no red tape at all, <laughs> no red tape to deal with. Just whatever you thought to do, go do it. So we um, we took the wheel loader out, we took the grader out, we took a bulldozer out, whatever gear we could round up, we took out there. Um, and the boys all started cutting off the the bottom side of the highway. I took my dozer out and. And I hopped off on the top side of the highway and started tracking up the edge of the farmland, um, putting a fire break in on the edge of the farmland. Um, I wasn't there long, and Delp arrived with their grader and even blokes. So we cut the bottom side off, down and back into the river, and we cut. We went the top side all the way up through the farm to the West Cairn Road. You know, you're probably not talking to a lot of people. There was only the, 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 the normal crew on the Delp here which is probably only half a dozen people, and I had half a dozen, and so it's probably only a dozen people. Julie Mustard and her husband live in Tongiai, just a few minutes' drive west from Can River. It was a storm that hit that night, about half past one, and I got up, and I'm standing on the veranda there, and I thought it was falling stars, but it was, and I thought, no, nah, it can't be, because it was clear, it was smoky. You know, we, we had smoke everywhere for days. And then um, I thought, oh, it must be an aeroplane. And I thought, no, nah, nah, it can't be that either. And then I thought, oh, there's somebody driving up out of Lower Tongiai. There's a road that comes up and, you, and I could see the uh, headlights, but it wasn't. They must have been fireballs because... It started down there. That's where it started. That went into Cairn. So it was a completely different fire than what we were expecting it to come from. Cairn River School was the local safer place of last resort. So Julie and her husband headed there along with many others. It wasn't very orderly at all. It wasn't. Because one brought their dog in. Everyone was told to keep their animals out. Once one person brought their dog in, everyone brought their animals in. And I was one of them. Because <laughs> Gruffy was, you know, he'd never been in the car. He'd always been on the property, so he was very stressed outside. People were just mingling about. Some people were quite upset. You know, there was people... In the hallway, was people in different rooms. People tended to be in their own little group and go to a room. It wasn't orderly done at all. And some people had mattresses on the hall, up and down the hall. And really, the situation uh, of everyone being at the hall, I think, at the school, it could have been that a lot of those people the next morning could have gone back to their houses and come back for their food and stayed the night if they didn't feel safe. But people were just living in the 
in the school and it was really not very nice, I don't think. Several people had already left Can River before it was directly threatened. But gathering the information and weighing up the risk to decide what to do wasn't always straightforward. Maria Mersick is the town's bush nurse. I remember thinking, do I make a decision? What kind of a decision will I make? I had two children with me. And because of the high um, demand um, professionally down here, because there were a number of people when they were evacuated from the campgrounds and that it really desperately needed nursing services, some were quite acutely unwell, actually, and the others just needed lots of um, rest, reassurance, basically. Um, we, we came, I made a decision for my children and I to come down here on that Sunday morning so we wouldn't have to drive. I live 15 minutes out of town. I, I guess I was p- feeling comfortable enough with the idea that we're going to be pretty safe, um, but that didn't last very long, I guess. <laughs> you know, even a couple of days before it happened, we were getting reassurance that you know, we're getting the tourists out because we don't want the overload in the event if something happens, but Cairn River is pretty safe. Um, and I think the fire that started at Wingen threw everybody out because that kind of, everyone was thinking that this one on this side here, it's going to be safe and it's going to be okay. But when that one started, it kind of threw everybody out a little bit and there was only a day before, a couple of days before. Um, so we, yeah, we ended up all going down to the school and um, it was, um, yeah, quite a, quite an ordeal actually down at the school with a number of people and dogs and, um, but look, all in all, I think people were really um, trying to do their very best and, you know, compose themselves and, um, yeah, I think there were some instances, but I think it's just to be expected considering that everyone was under pressure, you know, and under stress. Fred and Kerry Marchi run the Relics Cafe, which stayed open for the duration. They're pretty much always on deck there. It didn't matter if I dropped in for early breakfast or came by just before they closed at night. As you can hear, the cafe stays busy. They'll have meetings at the school. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. They'll have everyone on the tennis courts there and yeah, tell us what's happening and... And if you're going to go, go now, because if you thought the other day was bad, this is going to be a hundred times worse, you're going to die. That's what they said. That's what they said. Ke- I nearly started crying. Kerry nearly started crying. She said, oh, what do you think? She's going, oh, we, we've got to go, we've got to go. And So we got in the car, we just, I told a few people we're going to go. And we got in the car, I drove back home, got to the carport. I looked at Kerry and I said, I can't go. I just can't go. And she, and she said, why? And I said, well, how's everyone going to eat? People, the contractors are for... I said, well, I can't go. I said, if you want to go, you go with Anna and I'll stay. I don't know what I was going to do on my own, but... <laughs> anyway, we looked at each other and we goes, no, we'll stay. And we got... Luckily, we convinced the girl to go, so she got on the bus and went. So we just stayed and... I just couldn't do it. I was sick in the stomach. <laughs> I could yeah, not we were ready it. to hand our keys over to Del for the shop and just go and help yourself. And then we thought, no. Couldn't do it. No. That still brings tears to me, eyes. I just could not do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I said to him, we've been through a lot now together. Yeah. 
that was on the back of my mind. No, well, God, I hope nothing happens now. No, nothing happens. <laughs> but we survived, and we're, yep. and we're proud of it. We work hard, and we're proud of it. Yeah. Bush nurse Maria Masik remembers very clearly the push to get more people to leave town. The first impact was um, on um, that Tuesday morning, Monday night, Tuesday morning, and then by Thursday, I believe, the first convoy left. Um, and that's one of the things that I really had significant concerns about, um, was the, the message that has been delivered to the community. The alarmism, the panic that was created was absolutely insane. And it was done by CFA community liaison officers. None of them were local community members. They came from down the line. Um, you know, things like, you know, if you don't go with this convoy on Thursday, you will die because, you know, the second wave is going to be nothing. He said, I still recall his words. If you were here on Tuesday morning and what you experienced, that was nothing. Just, you know, the experience people had on Tuesday morning was quite horrific, actually. And um, it was, yeah, and, and quite a number of people panicked left. Um, some regretted leaving, mind you, because, you know, they left their loved ones behind here. And it was, it was quite intense. The whole, I think the whole dynamic was quite intense. Yeah, the panic that was created. I mean, I had three um, cases after that that people that had such severe anxiety that I actually had concerns, will they be able to drive themselves out in a convoy? Um, one had to be medicated. The others, I think, either took something they had or whatever, I can't remember now. But it was quite significant, actually. It was, it was quite a lot of panic. Um, the guy that came afterwards, I can't remember, I believe he might have been from the ICC, you know, facts were presented. Okay, this is what we're looking at. This is what we can't predict because we actually don't know. And this is the worst case scenario. And it's your choice. So it was, it was factual. It was good. It was no, no emotion involved to that extent that people would really panic or become anxious or whatever. People have so many reflections on how the stress of this emergency was handled and how people made decisions. Everyone has their own distinct story about this. One that I've heard a few times is that it was always clear to locals that many people simply wouldn't leave. That might be because of community ties or maybe out of professional duty or maybe because they simply couldn't afford it. So a question that's been asked is whether this can become a clear part of any future bushfire plans for the town. Because despite the risk, it will happen again. Many people won't go, even if the official policy says to leave early. Fred and Kerry Marchi, along with Julie Mustard at the beginning, set about getting everyone fed. At one point, that included grabbing an SES food truck for a while to do cooking at the school. We had power. Yeah. And then the power went out. So then we started cooking under lights. With a torch. With a torch. And then that got too hard and I seen the SES guy out in the roundabout and I thought, uh-huh. So I ran over to him, 
and we went down to the school for four days and then the power came back on and everyone said oh can you open up we need a real coffee so that's when we said yep right we'll come back and at that stage I had no cooks or anything because they all evacuated so then it was just egg and bacon rolls and things that I, we, us two could do on our own and then I managed to get a permit for the cook and Fred's sister and and then they came back and helped. That's a permit to be able to come back in? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. everyone was blocked out for three yeah. weeks. I took them to open the road up. Like we were doing 120 meals a night. Doing and, the, and then we were and doing lunch packs. And we'd done anything up to 250 lunch packs had to make. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, we we're, were getting desperate at one stage and we couldn't get food in and it was running out, running out. And we just said to Delp, unless you want to eat dim sims and chicken strips, you better try and help us with food. Yeah, get the truck in. Get the truck in, they did. So they'd escorted in. It's true that Can River didn't suffer the same levels of physical damage that many other places did. But being cut off for so many weeks created plenty of stress. Julie Mustard remembers some of the fallout. And smokes. Oh my God, that got real big issue. None of them people had smokes. And you can imagine what that was like. So you had to have a secret squirrel that was coming through the roadblocks, which was the contractors. Yeah, I forgot about that. It just reminded me. So if you had a secret squirrel, and then at one stage the local police, I think it was him, ended up with some cigarettes bought into him or given to him and he he was doling them out because it was very stressful for some people that had emotional trouble before the fire and then when they couldn't get their smokes it got bigger. I don't smoke but my husband does so he had to have a secret squirrel. <laughs> Did he have a regular supply? Yeah, he had a secret squirrel. <laughs> Yeah, but as far as getting the food in, that didn't happen. <laughs> Cigarettes. <laughs> that was shot. The town was the, the whole town, and there was cigarettes getting brought in by helicopter. Yeah. and they were actually handing three packets of cigarettes out to keep the locals calm. And I think the copper had some cigarettes to it yeah, one yeah, stage. Handing them out handing to people. Them out and, and, and you see people in the corner, you know, hiding and lighting up a cigarette, and, and then I got, people would pounce <laughs> on you. I got the forestry guy to get me a couple of packets of cigarettes, and I made a big mistake. I opened the packet up at the school, well, next minute, it was like a swarm of bees coming out. <laughs> no a cigarette. Maria Mersick and her children stayed at the Bush Nurse Centre. Over the years, that's had sprinklers and other fire protection installed. And there were more peak fire days after that first front. The following week, um, we went because the police force was pulled out um, for, pardon me, for their safety. Um, they were all pulled out, so all emergency services were pulled out, and um, um, there was a number of people evacuated already. Um, I didn't feel that professionally was wise for me to stay back, um, considering the people that stayed back. I was kind of thinking, okay, there's a potential there for problems and the police is not here. So those couple of nights, Friday night and Saturday night, I, I left and then I came back Sunday morning. 
The same as in other communities all around the country, many people in Can River pulled together and looked out for each other at the peak of the crisis. To see that people really cared and put so much effort you know, my kids will pull aside and say, oh, have you had breakfast? Come over here, we'll, you know, make sure you get fed and all of that sort of stuff. It was really, it was very nice to see that people were really kind of working together and sure, again, you know, personalities, incidences, whatever. But all in all, I thought it was a very, it was a nice, nice way to see the community come together and people that haven't spoken to each other in years that I was aware of, all of a sudden actually spoke to each other and, you know, went to deliver the meal or do something or whatever, which was really nice. It didn't last very long, mind you, but it was lovely, lovely to see. Meanwhile, Gus McKinnon and his crew still had their hands full. I was up the valley one day, we are putting out grass fires up the farms, walkers' farms, and then got that under control and then come back into Cairn River while it was coming out of the box forest like a bloody train. At 100 mile now, jumped over the highway and got in the farm. Then we're flat out, um, everyone turns up, with, and the CFA turns up, and we're all got water on. My grader turns up, well, you haven't got time to cut the fences. He's going through the fences 100 mile now, and there's fencing wire going everywhere. And you just got to put earthen tracks in to try and cut it off. And yeah, well, we saved the valley again, didn't catch fire. So um, we just. Yeah, went out and attacked it. So yeah, and then we had a then we had a, a bit of a job for the next week, two weeks. Over those weeks, residents from the town and valley were scattered far and wide. What that meant for the people involved and how it played out is for the next episode. Thanks again for listening. I'm Matthew Abad, and this is the Three Towns Podcast. Mm-hmm.